Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode features Helen Scales, Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, a new way to make injections painless and more practical. This is a system where they have a series of very tiny needles. They're each less than a tenth of the diameter of a normal hypodermic needle. And rather than having to be injected intramuscularly, like most existing injections are, these ones just go into the skin. We find out how some animals can dance in time to music. The only animals that were truly dancing in time to the beat were vocal mimics. And that included 17 species of parrot and an elephant, which is rather wonderful. Also, we'll find out what we can learn from swine flu DNA and how it inspired some unconventional music. Plus, Sarah Castor-Perry looks back on a pivotal moment in the digital revolution that happened this week in science history. That's all on the way. Good news this week for anyone that is needle-phobic and also at a time when we're looking for ways to combat the flu, particularly with the threat of a pandemic perhaps lurking in Mexico. And now, perhaps, all around the world, we'll find out shortly. But scientists at Emory University, this is Richard Compans and his colleagues, have come up with a clever new way to make injections both painless but also much more practical. This is what they call a microarray of needles. This is a system where they have a series of very tiny needles. They're each less than a tenth of the diameter of a normal hypodermic needle, less than a millimetre long too. And they have these arranged in a line on a special plastic holder. The surfaces of these needles are covered with an antigen, in other words, the substance that you want the body to react to. And rather than having to be injected intramuscularly, like most existing injections are, these ones just go into the skin. And they make use of the fact that the skin is very richly supplied in cells called antigen presenting cells. These include cells like Langerhans cells and dendritic cells and what these cells do is they soak up the antigen that's put into the surface layers of the skin by these tiny needles and they then present that antigen to the immune system triggering an immune response and in tests on mice what they were able to show is that it produced an equivalent amount of antibody production in an equivalent amount of time as a normal intramuscular injection and also what they say is that when they gave animals a dose of flu which would normally prove fatal, animals that had been treated with a flu vaccine delivered via this method all survived. The paper that they've brought out is published this week in the journal PNAS, and they make some important points in there. They point out that this system, because the virus on the injection system is dried out, these things don't need refrigeration, which makes them ideal for sending through the post. That could help elderly people who can't get to the GP surgery. It could also help people in third world countries where refrigeration is a problem. And because they don't involve big needles, they're less terrifying for people with needle needle phobias. But also there's a big benefit, which is that they don't need any expertise to use them. So you could do this at home, which I think is a terrific uh, step forward if it works. Is it likely to be kind of cheap and available in that sense, uh, not, not much more expensive than normal? Absolutely, yeah. uses exactly the same antigens that we would normally put into an intramuscular injection, except you put them onto the needles and dry them out. Sounds great. Well, also this week, scientists in Japan have found a very strong link between higher levels of the metal lithium in tap water and a reduced incidence of suicide. Well, Hirochika Ogami and Takeshi Terao from Oita University in Japan led a team who measured the levels of lithium in tap water in 18 municipalities of a region 
region of Japan called Oitra. And uh, they compared that against the rates of suicide among the million people who live there. And the study published in the British Journal of Psychiatry shows that between 2002 and 2006, in areas where lithium levels were highest, the suicide rates were significantly lower. Well, People with serious mood disorders like bipolar disorder are already treated with high doses of lithium and that helps to stabilise their moods. Um, But this study shows that at much lower doses, perhaps accumulating in the brain over time, this may also have a really positive impact on people's moods, including um, suicide rates. Um, The amount of lithium in drinking water ranged from 0.7 to 59 micrograms per litre and the study clearly raises the issue of whether we should be thinking about adding lithium on the large scales um, to drinking water. And it's a sort of mass and involuntary delivery of medicine like that that's something that's no doubt going to raise a lot of hot debate about whether that's the kind of thing we should be doing. But the authors really emphasise that it's very early days. We need much more study to understand more about the effects lithium can have putting it in drinking water, especially since we already know it can have quite nasty side effects and can be quite toxic at higher doses. Do we have any clues as to how lithium actually works? Because one big enigma in psychiatry for many years is when you give people lithium for things like bipolar disorder and also very bad depression, it makes people better, but scientists have always said they don't really know why. Yes, absolutely, and we are still fairly left in the dark um, about that, but there has been a study also recently by Professor Adrian Harwood of Cardiff School of Biosciences in the UK, and they've actually shed some light on that whole issue of what exactly is going on when lithium is taken and what effect it's having in the brain. And um, they've published a study in the journal Disease Models and Mechanisms and they've actually seemed to have pinpointed a likely pathway that lithium may act through because they took laboratory um, tests on cells, um, cell cultures, and they found that it seems to be that lithium is inhibiting an enzyme called inositol monophosphatase, and that's IMPase. And um, uh, it seems that actually that reduces the production of another molecule called PIP3 and that plays an important role in controlling brain cell signalling. Now, a certain variant of the gene of um, IMPAs um, has previously been linked to people with bipolar disorder and it could be that lithium is somehow counteracting changes in that gene and having that effect um, somehow on on cell signalling processes. But the precise mechanism remained to be discovered but at least now we seem to have a light shone as to where we should be looking in the future for further studies. So fluoride for good teeth and lithium for a good mood. Thank you Helen. Also this week, scientists in America this is Michael Check and his colleagues at the University of Massachusetts have shown that they can switch off individual genes in certain parts of the body's immune system using yeast. Now, this is rather surprising. The yeast isn't actually alive when they do this. Uh, It's a very clever paper written in Nature this week. What they do is take yeast cells, which are about one five hundredth of a millimetre across, and if they bath them in acid and then in some solvents, what happens is all of the contents of the yeast cells are stripped away and you're left with this outer husk, which is made of a sugary molecule, which is called beta-1,3-D-glucan. And this is very much loved by macrophages, which are cells that eat things. They're part of your immune system that engulf things and break them down. They're attracted to this particular chemical. And what the researchers have found is that they can fill these empty yeast husks with other chemicals, including putting in bits of genetic material. So what they did was to fill them up with structures called interfering RNAs. These are very short pieces of genetic material, which are the genetic mirror image of certain genes in the body. And if you add these mirror images to a cell, what the mirror image does is it hunts down its own gene product, the complementary mirror image to itself, 
and causes it to be broken down. So it effectively switches that gene off. So by feeding mice these yeast husks that were full of these uh, interfering RNAs, the researchers were able to shut off a couple of genes in the mice. They targeted one gene called TNF-alpha, which is very important in inflammation, and another gene linked to TNF-alpha, another one called MAP4K4. And what they were able to demonstrate is not only when fed these particles by mouth would these genes shut off in the macrophages in these mice, but also they could give the mice a dose of something called LPS. This is lipopolysaccharide. This is a a chemical which comes from the surfaces of bacteria and is linked to septic shock. So when someone gets septicemia, they're producing a lot of this chemical, and this is what causes people to get low blood pressure and sometimes, unfortunately, to die. Well, in mice that were given these injections with LPS, but which had previously been treated with these particles... Uh, more than half the mice survived. So this suggests that this could be a very clever way to, to selectively turn off certain genes in the immune system, and that could be useful for treating chronic inflammatory disorders like rheumatoid arthritis. Sounds like very good news indeed. Well, finally this week, um, we have some news that it isn't just people who enjoy moving and dancing to their favourite tunes, but birds, it turns out, also like to boogie. Anirudh Patel from the Neurosciences Institute in San Diego first saw Snowball, the sulphur-crested cockatoo, on a video clip on the website YouTube, bobbing his head and tapping his feet in time to a pop song. Well, to find out if Snowball really was feeling the beat, Patel led a team who filmed Snowball dancing to everybody by the Backstreet Boys, which apparently is one of Snowball's favourite tunes. Can you give us a little rendition to remind us how it goes? I'm sorry, I actually don't know that song at all. Do you know it, Chris? I think it's the one that goes, everybody... Yeah, that one. Okay. I think. Am I right, guys? Uh, everyone's, everyone's kind of looking shocked. <laughs> yeah, they're nodding. Yeah, I think someone. you should carry on. That was wonderful. I don't know anymore. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, so there we go. Backstreet Boys was the tune they played to Snowball. And um, then they measured, the team measured how closely his head bobs and feet taps synchronised with the main beats of the music. And they found that rather than randomly bobbing around with the music when the music is playing and occasionally falling in time with the rhythm, Snowball actually kept time with the beat, just as well as human volunteers did. When he obviously hasn't been to a nightclub in Cambridge then. Wouldn't fit in at all there, would he? <laughs> oh dear, it's been a while since I've been to one of those and certainly haven't seen any parrots dancing on the dance floor, but maybe we should take them along. But what does this prove, Helen? It, basically, what um, this is showing that uh, it's supporting a theory um, of how entrainment to music, otherwise known as dancing, arose. And it seems that it could have uh, been uh, because our brains are actually wired up to be able to hear sounds and mimic them, something that both humans and parrots can do. If you've kept a parrot, you'll know that they like to mimic you and uh, try and sound like you and say the words Polly have a cracker and all that well vocal mimicry actually requires a close link between auditory and motor circuits in the brain you have to hear something and then respond to it with a movement and a similar thing allows us to respond to music and and dance to it essentially now another team of scientists did a similar thing also in the journal Current Biology these two papers appeared in this week then they also studied um, a couple of other parrots and showed a very similar thing but they also looked through YouTube uh, all the clips there of uh, clips that apparently are of animals dancing and um, they did the similar video analysis to see if they were actually dancing to the beat or just kind of moving around randomly or being forced to move by their owners and they found that the only ones the only animals that were truly dancing in time to the beat were vocal mimics and that included 17 species of parrot and an elephant which is rather wonderful 
And really, this is just um, helping us to understand a little bit more about how being able to dance and enjoy music might have arisen. And it really is the first step towards that. But I like the idea of we should go out and do some more tests on other vocal mimics. I want to be able to, I want to know if hummingbirds, songbirds, dolphins, seals and bats, who are all vocal mimics, I want to know if they can dance too. I think that would be a rather wonderful study to be involved in. I rather like the idea of writing a grant application saying I'm going to download 3,000 clips from YouTube of animals dancing in order to... To see whether they can dance in time to music. I wonder what the people refereeing that grant actually thought of it. Thank you, Helen, for that. Now, also in the news this week, how could you have missed it? The fact that we are perhaps on the verge of a pandemic, or perhaps not. People are very worried about this swine influenza from Mexico, but surely more answers than any can be obtained by sequencing the virus and understanding what its genetic story is. And joining us now from Imperial College in London is Professor Wendy Barclay. She's an influenza virologist. Hello, Wendy. Hello. Good to have you with us on The Naked Scientist. Tell us a bit about where we stand with this. What have we learned so far from looking at the genetics of this virus? Well, over the uh, course of last weekend and then into last week, uh, most of the genes of a number of different isolates of this virus have been sequenced and that information has been shared by scientists over the web, which allows us all um, to have a look and, and, and see whether or not this virus has got any of the particular traits that we would associate with, for example, um, a highly pathogenic virus, so that we can begin to predict what to expect as this virus uh, spreads into people um, and what sort of uh, action we should be preparing ourselves to take. What about where it came from, Wendy? What does the sequence actually tell us about its origins? Mm, very interesting. Um, Swine influenza is is quite a complicated beast, it turns out. Uh, your, your listeners may or may not know, but influenza virus has its genome split into eight discrete pieces known as the segments of RNA. And in general, each one of those pieces encodes um, one protein, although some of them encode two. So there's about 11 proteins spread on eight pieces. And you could think of these a little bit like chromosomes, if you like. They're, they're discrete physical entities that encode genes. Now, we can tell by looking at those segments of RNA uh, that uh, way, way back, some of those RNA segments were once segments of viruses that were circulating in humans uh, and also in birds and in pigs. So what happened with swine influenza back in the late 1990s is that um, a particular strain appeared in the Americas, which contained gene segments from at least three different viruses from three different types of hosts, humans, um, birds, and pigs. And this constellation has been known as the triple reassortant genome, or TRIG. Um, That seemed to be a very happy virus, if you like. It was spreading around the pigs in the Americas very well, shuffling a little bit on the outside, its antigenic properties, but, but the basic backbone of the virus seemed pretty fit. Now, what's now happened is that that pig virus from the Americas has somehow muddled up with another pig virus, which until recently was really only known about in Europe. And the two of those have mixed together, one would imagine, in a pig, which perhaps became co-infected by the two viruses and have produced this final Mexican flu. Why do you think (laughs) that this interesting combination has now suddenly decided it's going to jump out of the pig and start infecting humans? Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a super question and obviously something that we, we need to understand and lots of people are having a think about. The, the trig um, genome that was existing in the Americas since the 1990s 
didn't do that until now. The insides of the virus have stayed more or less the same. So the best bet is that it's the particular combination of the outside genes, the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase, on the trig backbone, which has allowed this jumping to occur. But it's early days to say that yet, and obviously that's just based on sequence gazing. What we're going to need to do now is some real biology to try and understand why those surface genes, the H and the N, the particular ones, uh, have sort of come together and, and allowed this jump to happen. Thank you, Mandy, for explaining that. Could, could you just finally tell us what are the big priorities for virologists to, to now do in relation to this pandemic virus or potential pandemic virus? What will the big questions that people are now beginning to ask be? Yes, well, I mean, obviously, from a practical point of view, um, we've got to know, is this virus susceptible to antiviral drugs and will it remain so? So the good news at the moment from the gene gazing is that, yes, it is at the moment, as far as we can see. And of course, we know that people are responding well to Tamiflu treatment. But we also know that single point mutations can render such viruses resistant. So we need to know, for example, will this particular virus tolerate those mutations or will there be um, a sort of cost to them, which would mean that, that, that any resistant viruses that emerged uh, were, were unfit or no longer transmissible between people? Uh, another key question is whether or not vaccines uh, that we have already confer any sort of immunity. To be honest, uh, there's so little uh, sequence uh, homology between human strains that we've been vaccinating people against, and this one, that's unlikely, but we certainly need to check it out to be sure. And finally, the question uh, that is sort of a big unknown is whether or not this virus is going to change any more than it has already. Um, we know it's managed to jump into people, uh, but is it going to stay the same as it is now, or is there a chance that it could mutate? And if it did mutate, could it get any more virulent, um, or is it more likely to go the other way and sort of adapt better to its host and, and live in harmony? Well, let's hope not. Thank you very much. That's Wendy Barclay, who is Professor of Flu Biology, Virology at Imperial College in London. Helen. Well, it's not just science that we get from a sequence of DNA, but we can also use it to generate music. Have a listen to this. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, we've got Stefan Zielinski with us. He created this music using the sequence of amino acids in a protein in the swine flu virus called hemagglutinin, and that's the one that causes red blood cells to collect together. So, Stefan, um, why make music from a virus that might trigger the next big pandemic? Well, you know, I was just sitting around uh, feeding my dancing bat some high lithium tap water, and... Uh, a buddy of mine from the uh, Mayo Clinic sent out uh, the sequence that they had just come up with for this particular variation of hemagglutinin. And I was wondering if I could translate it in a sign that I would have an easier time understanding and maybe hear the functional groups. You know, if I could translate it into music, then perhaps uh, a symphony has movements. I was hoping that I could hear a division within the music between the functional groups and I couldn't but maybe other people can. So tell us how did you go about making this piece of music? Well I'm gonna cheat and answer a closely related question which is when you listen to the music what parts of what you're hearing came from me and what parts really came from the virus. Uh, viruses obviously don't share a lot of characteristics with music. They don't have a key, they don't have a time signature and they don't have orchestration so all of that stuff is things that I came up with and you know, put, into the, put into the piece itself. 
what really came from the virus and all of this is the melody. Now, proteins are made out of 20 amino acids in life as we know it. Uh, and these 20 amino acids come in various classifications. You know, a specific amino acid might be uh, hydrophobic or it might not be. It might be aliphatic, it might be aromatic. What I did was I took the amino acids and divided them up by chemical category and assigned each category to an instrument. So for instance, the piano got nine of the amino acids. Uh, from there, I sorted them by van der Waal volume, which is approximately how big the amino acid, how much space it takes up. Uh, and then by analogy to basic acoustics, I assigned the large ones to relatively low notes and the small ones to relatively high notes. So when you listen to the music, the interplay between the various instruments and the specific melody that's picked out, that's all come from the virus. Excellent. Well, we're certainly enjoying listening to it, and it's quite a new experience for us here. So thanks, Stefan. That was Stefan Zielinski, and he's taken the sequence of amino acids in the swine flu virus and used it to sequence some music. You can find out more about him online at stefan-zielinski.com. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Now we join Sarah Castaperi to find out what happened this week in science history. This week in science history saw in 1952 the inventor Jeffrey Dummer present his idea of the integrated circuit, now an essential component of all modern computers, to the US Electronic Components Symposium. Although his attempts at building such a circuit failed, and the first working examples were built by Kilby and Noyce in 1958, Dummer is known as the prophet of the integrated circuit. Dummer was born in 1909 in Yorkshire, England. He worked in electronics from the age of 22, and during the Second World War he worked for the Air Ministry Research Establishment, where he designed and installed over 70 types of radar training equipment. He also travelled to the United States and Canada to train men in the use of this equipment. He thought that many of the electrical components of the machines used for radar were not good enough and over the next decade or so explored techniques for creating more reliable circuits. A circuit for something like a computer is a bit like a very complicated version of the circuit diagrams we learn about in physics at school. Components that carry out certain jobs are all connected together to give the properties necessary to, say, save a document to your computer or play a downloaded video clip on your mobile. Before the integrated circuit, all these components, transistors and resistors that act like tiny little switches, were soldered, which is sort of like gluing down with liquid metal that will conduct electricity, to circuit boards individually. Dummer suggested that a way to make circuits more efficient would be to use sheets of semiconducting material like silicon. Now, this is not to be confused with silicone that is found in breast implants. Silicon is a metalloid found between the metals and the non-metals on the periodic table with some metallic and some non-metallic properties. Pure silicon doesn't conduct electricity very well, so to vary its conductivity, a process called impurity doping is carried out, where ions of other elements like phosphorus and arsenic are introduced into the silicon. Before this doping, though, the silicon itself must be exceptionally pure, with only 1 in 10 to the 10 atoms being non-silicon. That's a bit like one grain of sugar in 10 buckets of sand. Depending on what element is introduced, the conductivity can be high or low, with different levels of conductivity needed in different parts of the circuit. 
An integrated circuit allows miniaturization of the parts needed to make something like a computer work, hence its other name, the microchip. They can be as small as just a few millimetres square and have up to a million transistors per square millimetre. Their small size means that integrated circuits are more efficient too, with less material used and much less distance for information and electricity to travel, reducing the loss of information and reducing the amount of power needed. Integrated circuits are also cheaper to manufacture than discrete circuits as they can be mass-produced. Layers of differently conducting materials are printed onto the chips to create the circuit, just as Dummer had suggested, and then areas cut out to reveal the different layers and change how they're connected together. The integrated circuit is part of what many academics believe is one of the greatest technological revolutions in the history of mankind, right up there with agriculture and industry, the digital revolution. The digital age we live in now is dependent on these circuits, laptops, the internet, mobile phones, iPods, handheld games consoles, everything like that. Dummer's presentation was the first step on the road to this revolution, giving us so many things that today we could not live without. That was Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how this week in 1952, Jeffrey Dummer first proposed building electronic components on integrated circuit boards, thus paving the way for the digital revolution. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which this week featured Helen Scales, Chris Smith, Sarah Castor-Perry and our guests, Professor Wendy Barclay from Imperial College London and Stefan Zielinski. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed this newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.